I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the April edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to discuss relates to disability and economic disadvantage. The association of socio-economic disadvantage and the onset of chronic disabling conditions in childhood is well known. Although whether socio-economic disadvantage is on the causal pathway to or arises as a consequence of childhood chronic disabling conditions is less clear. In this issue, Nick Spencer and Lyndall Strasdins report a longitudinal study comparing children who developed a chronic disabling condition between 6 to 7 and 10 to 11 years with children without a chronic disabling condition at either age. It's a complex study and the methodology is in the paper. Chronic disabling conditions included physical conditions, learning difficulties, hearing and visual problems, all for greater than six months with functional restriction. If potential confounders were considered, things like maternal chronic disabling condition, lone parent, children in the lower income quintile had a two and a half times greater odds of chronic disabling condition onset than those in the highest centile. Over the study period, income increased across the whole sample, although less in the chronic disabling condition onset households than no chronic disabled condition onset households. This was statistically significant. In some respects, this is predictable data. In essence, more chronic disabling conditions in children from poorer families. And that once there is a child with a chronic disabling condition in a family unit, the family finances will deteriorate. The challenge is how to best deal with this and whether policies which alleviate social disadvantage could potentially impact. In an impressive accompanying leading article, Professor Maggie Atkinson, the Children's Commissioner for England, discusses the wider issue of disability and economic disadvantage facing the facts. The next article I'd like to cover relates to the prevalence and management of gastrointestinal manifestations in Silver-Russell syndrome. Silver-Russell syndrome is an imprinted disorder characterised by intrauterine growth retardation, relative microcephaly, faltering growth, a typical facial phenotype and body asymmetry. Feeding difficulties are common. In this issue, Marsoud and colleagues report the nutritional status and gastrointestinal manifestations in a cohort, 75 children, median age of 24 months, prior to starting growth hormone. Nutritional impairment was common. 70% had a weight for expected height ratio of less than 80%. Gastroesophageal reflux was frequently seen with severe vomiting in infancy in 50% persistent at 12 months in 29%. Feeding difficulties were seen in 65%, requiring nutritional support in 49%, including the need for gastrostomy in 20%.
constipation was a significant issue in 20%. The authors rightly advocate systematic exploration of nutritional status and gut manifestations in these children prior to starting growth hormone and emphasise that if the nutritional status is impaired, that even with growth hormone, growth may not be optimised. The third article I'd like to cover relates to advanced care planning, the practicalities, legalities, complexities and controversies. There is no doubt that the prevalence of life-limiting conditions has increased significantly over the last 10 to 20 years. The best delivery of health and social care to this group is complex, with an increasing need to recognise when death and dying may be possibilities so that appropriate discussions can be had with families. This is, in effect, an advanced care plan. In this issue, Karen Horridge describes the components of the paediatric advanced care plan, the evidence to support its use and the practicalities of its use. In essence, an advanced care plan provides a framework for paediatricians, families and their multidisciplinary teams to consider, reflect and record the outcome of their conversations about what might happen in the future in order to optimise the quality of care and informed decision-making, including for situations where death is a possibility. The elements of the plan are discussed in detail, including potentially difficult areas which may be controversial and difficult to address. This includes the legal framework which will help with decision-making. There is also a useful list of red flags that dying and death are significant possibilities, tips to consider when planning a conversation about the possibility of dying and death of a child or young person, and a checklist for use if dying or death may be possible. In the increasingly complex medical world, this is an essential read and will help ensure that the care to children with complex medical problems is considered and appropriate. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to the use of monoclonal antibody therapy in children with paediatric inflammatory bowel disease. Biological agents are increasingly used in paediatric onset IBD in the UK and worldwide. In this issue, Cameron and colleagues report the Scottish national experience using infliximab and adalimumab. They report on 132 children, less than 18 years, treated over 10 years, 114 of which have got Crohn's disease, 16 ulcerative colitis and 2 IBDU. This is therefore an important real-life data set and likely to reflect experience in other centres. 127 received infliximab to induce remission, 61 entered remission, 49 had a partial response and 17 no response. 72 were given maintenance, of whom 23 required dose escalation. 18 out of 127 had infusion reactions and 27 other adverse effects. 18 out of 127 had infusion reactions and 27 other adverse events, 10 of which required hospitalisation, including gastroenteritis, perianal sepsis, lupus-like reaction and erectile stricture. 
29 patients had adalimumab, 24 of whom had also had infliximab. 10 entered remission, 12 had a partial remission and 7 no response. All went on to maintenance therapy, 19 of whom required dose escalation. 9 had adverse offence of which 2 required hospitalisation. This is an important data set. The data set reflects the complexity of treating inflammatory bowel disease and adds to the data that informs the risk-benefit discussion when treatment escalation to biological agents is required. It highlights potential adverse events, some of which are likely to reflect the use of biologicals and some reflecting the severity of disease that need to be considered when patients on these therapies present unwell. Dan Turner highlights the international context of this real-life data set in an accompanying editorial. How effective is the long-term use of anti-tumor necrosis factor therapy for pediatric inflammatory bowel disease? I'd like to finish with an article from Education and Practice this month. In an excellent pharmacy update, Elder and colleagues consider the important issue of hydrocortisone for adrenal insufficiency. The article includes the basic science and physiology, causes of adrenal insufficiency, particularly high-dose steroids, and replacement during illness, hospitalisation and procedures. The importance of the steroid card is emphasised. The importance of an alert bracelet is emphasised. There's a helpful summary at the end and a set of multiple choice questions to ensure that you're updated on this important topic. This is one article out of Education and Practice this month. There are also excellent reviews from the 15-minute consultation series on herpes encephalitis and eczema herpeticum, an interpretation on how to use the central venous line tip culture, a dermatophile, a review of NICE guidance for head injury in children and young people, and more articles from the Equip series on clinical order and developing clinical guidance. All fun to read and all excellent CPD. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Thank you for listening.